Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I'm recording this little intro on May 21st. The podcast that is following this little intro is with Dr. Melissa Hamilton, who's a professor at the University of Surrey uh, in the law school. And she primarily focus her research primarily focuses on domestic violence and the criminal justice system. I put off posting the podcast until now, uh, mostly because I had a lot of problems with the audio recording. It was the third podcast I did, and I made a I kind of messed it up. So I had I had a lot of problems with the audio, so I had to do quite a bit of editing. However, I actually think that it worked out for the better given the subject matter and the context of the COVID-19 situation. I'll put up a bit of a trigger warning as well. We talked mostly about domestic violence. We talked a bit about sentencing, and we talked about the militarization of the police. We talked about a lot of things, but those are sort of the three main ones that we focused on. And it's not a very, it's not a graphic podcast, um, but the subject matter, obviously domestic violence is a... Well, it's, it's pretty loaded. It's heavy. It, it's a heavy topic to discuss, but it's, well, it's very necessary. And even though it is difficult and it's hard to hear, I think now more than ever is particularly important to pay attention to how, well, unintended consequences <laughs> of the quarantine, how that has affected so many people. I figured I would look up some statistics and just provide a little bit more of a context to the situation that's going on right now. And I just feel that it's very important that people consider the current situation that so many people are facing. I'm just going to jump right in here. Angela Marie McDougall is the executive director of Vancouver's Battered Women's Support Services quoted as saying that we wrote a letter to the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance about additional funding for shelters, sexual assault centers, and groups like ours. We ended up not getting any funding, which shows a big gap in recognition of the kind of work groups like ours do. Also, calls to the Vancouver Battered Women's Support Services helpline have jumped 400% in the last two months. And across Canada... There have been nine women killed through gender-based violence in the last 36 days. For a bit of context, uh, Stats Canada has reported that in 2018, there were over 99,000 victims of police-reported intimate partner violence aged 15 to 89, and most occurred in a dwelling occupied by both the victim and the accused, and women accounted for 8 in 10 victims. McDougall has a quote that I think really captures the essence of what's going on here, and she says that it's a pandemic overlying an epidemic of violence. Again, unintended consequences. You, you enact a quarantine and you force a lockdown, which essentially traps victims with their abusers. There's not even a time frame, well, at least in most places currently, there really is no time frame as to when will it end. So... Put yourself and try to think about how some people may be experiencing um, the quarantine situation right now. Because as bad as it is, it can always be worse. And, and certainly for a lot of people, it's, it's pretty, pretty damn awful. Uh, internationally, in Spain, the emergency number for domestic violence received 18% more calls in the first two weeks of lockdown than in the same period a month earlier. 
In France, police reported a nationwide spike of about 30% in domestic violence calls. And interestingly, an Italian parliamentary committee report stated that the number of calls to the National Domestic Violence Hotline dropped by 55% during the week of March 8 to 15 from the same period in 2019. However, the report underlined the fact that the decrease in calls did not signify a decrease in violence. It merely meant that some victims were not able to call hotlines without being detected by their abusers because of the quarantine measures. So again, we see how being trapped with your abuser can have some rather significant consequences. Uh, Marianne Hester is a sociologist at Bristol University who studies abusive relationships. And she's quoted as saying that domestic violence goes up whenever families spend more time together, such as Christmas and summer vacations. The isolation has also shattered support networks, making it far more difficult for victims to get help or escape. Home isolation, however vital to the fight against the pandemic, is still giving more power to the abuser. Institutions that are supposed to protect women from domestic violence, many weak and underfunded to begin with, are now straining to respond to the increased demand. You'll see that there's a running theme here, which is that, first, the governments impose lockdowns without making enough provisions for domestic abuse victims, and about 10 days later, distress calls spike, setting off public outcry. Only then do the governments scramble to improvise solutions. Angela Marie McDougall from the first quote where she said that she wrote to the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance about funding. They denied. I believe earlier in this week or last week, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, set aside a few tens of millions for domestic violence uh, funds. So clearly you see this, uh, you know, trying to, basically trying to make a decision that they should have made in the first place. I've made a real point on the podcast about not to talk about COVID-19 um, because it's everywhere. And if you want to look at that, you can go to any outlet and find that information. And I wanted the podcast to be a bit more positive and educational because there's just because the, the COVID-19 situation is happening right now does not mean the world just stops. You have to kind of keep informed and stay educated and, and, and do what you can to make the most of the situation that you have. But I, I really just, it really bothers me, this, this whole situation, because they enacted a quarantine without any consideration for the unintended consequences that it would have. And you want to talk about how the virus is killing people. Well, so is domestic violence at quite the rapid rate. It's not something that can just be swept under the rug. It's a very significant issue right now. It's always a significant issue, but it's certainly being exacerbated right now. Continuing on looking at the UK, at least 16 suspected domestic abuse killings in the UK have been identified since the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions were imposed, far higher than the average rate for that time of year. Uh, Karen Ngala Smith is the founder of an organization very uh, aptly called uh, Counting Dead Women, which is a pioneering project that records the killing of women by men in the UK. Uh, and she's identified at least 16 killings between March 23rd and April 12th, including those of children. And looking at the same period over the past 10 years, Smith's data records an average of five deaths. 
she's quoted as saying that we have to be cautious about how we talk about increases in men killing women. Over the last 10 years in the UK, a woman has been killed by a man every three days and by a partner or ex-partner every four days. If this was averaged out, we might expect to see seven women killed in 21 days. But we can say that the number of women killed by men over the first three weeks since lockdown is the highest it's been for 11 years and is double that of an average 21 days over the last 10 years. So, again, it's heavy stuff to listen to. And, and obviously right off the bat, I'm, I'm hitting you with, with some pretty harsh statistics here. But, again, it's necessary to hear. And it's very important to consider, well, and question the premise just because a lockdown has been imposed and COVID-19 is a, I suppose you can call it a lethal virus. Um, <laughs> there's also some other things that are out there that are having quite the significant effect on people, including domestic violence and resulting in death. Uh, and lastly, Anita Batia is the Deputy Executive Director of the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women, and she's quoted as saying that the very technique we're using to protect people from the virus can perversely impact victims of domestic violence. She added that while we absolutely support the need to follow these measures of social distancing and isolation, we also recognize that it provides an opportunity for abusers to unleash more violence. In listening to the podcast while I was editing, Dr. Hamilton uh, actually very appropriately stated, a direct quote, that the problem with domestic violence laws is that well-intended policies consistently have unintended consequences. And I don't think that's ever been more appropriate than right now, given the obvious effect that it is having on women and domestic violence in general. So... That's definitely the most. Uh, that's definitely the most graphic this podcast will be. Um, the rest of the podcast is uh, rather academic, I would say. It's very informative, and Dr. Hamilton does an excellent job at articulating all these different issues. And we go into some other things as well. Um, but again, I just figured that given the situation, I felt it was important to provide the context of a situation. And it will be interesting to see, certainly in contract law with uh, tenancy agreements, rent agreements, in criminal law for a number of different, different reasons, and family law, tort law, we're going to see lots of very interesting developments. Well, at least I hope so, that we will see some very interesting developments. And uh, something to consider uh, is the, how domestic violence and, and other things are being exacerbated by the quarantine situation. So I'm going to sign off from there, and uh, thank you for listening, and enjoy the podcast with Dr. Melissa Hamilton. Anyway, so uh, we're here with Dr. Melissa Hamilton. I had you for a couple modules last year. A lot of cool topics that we'll go through, through those modules as well, and... Uh, yeah, so I think we'll just kind of start with, so before you got here, uh, being a lecturer, tell us a little bit about what you were doing before that, because I know you, you're doing lots of cool things. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of depends on how far back you want to go. As far my, back as my, you're willing to go. <laughs> my family says, how many different careers are you going to have? So the trajectory started with uh, being a police officer and corrections officer. 
Um, hence my interest in criminal justice and the modules that, for example, that you took uh, were sentencing policy and corrections as well as domestic violence in the law. Um, so then, it, then uh, I went to law school and in the U.S. law school is a professional degree so it's after your undergraduate degree. I practiced law actually in a corporation having nothing to do with criminal justice. I was in-house counsel which means that you're employed by a company so instead of being in a law firm, uh, your client is the company and all of its employees and executives. And I did that for a while, and that was fun. I did uh, international contracting, intellectual property, uh, everything that in-house counsel will do. Uh, it was a large um, software and services company, so there was some intellectual property as well. Uh, I traveled around the world some uh, negotiating contracts. Uh, eventually, and that was fun until my company was bought out by another company who didn't appreciate the lawyers. <laughs> so it was no longer fun. Uh, and I thought, I'm interested, you know, I've always been interested in criminal justice policy. So um, that was of interest to me. But I also knew that with my uh, prior experience as a police officer and corrections officer, that I had been taught to think about criminal justice policy in certain ways. For example, that the death penalty worked because I was a police officer in Florida and they had the death penalty. And I thought very severe sentencing was a deterrent and um, having a high arrest rate would also be a deterrent. Uh, but I thought that with those ingrained policies that maybe they weren't true. And so I thought before I actually impact policy and maybe negatively impact policy, not knowing it, that uh, I should get a degree in criminal justice and see what the research actually said. So that took my, uh, my route into academia to get a PhD in criminology. And indeed, uh, after reading the materials and the research, is I changed all of those pre-existing notions about <laughs> what criminal justice policy ought to be. And uh, found myself in academia um, uh, after my PhD, not intentionally, but it uh, when I was in my program, I suddenly found myself on a list to teach a course, which I did not apply for, so that was kind of a surprise and I was a little freaked out. Uh, but I ended up teaching a course in loving teaching, and so that got me into the route then of staying in academia and teaching. Uh, eventually, I taught a few years in undergraduate programs in criminal justice, for example, teaching individuals um, who wanted to be police officers or correction officers officers or somehow in criminal justice, and then moved on to teaching law school and had been doing that at several places before I got here to Surrey, also teaching Great. in the law school. So I didn't know that you were an officer in Florida. <laughs> what is so, wrong with Florida? Oh, God. Florida is crazy. My goodness, <laughs> the shit that goes on down there. Well, it was certainly interesting because this was in the 80s, and it was the time of the um, drug war was at its peak, and Florida is an obvious destination where drugs get into the country uh, through Miami um, and what have you. So where I was at in Florida, we there was a drug problem as well. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I just finished Narcos, so I feel like I'm educated <laughs> on it. <laughs> but um, so now you were... You were a police officer and then also a corrections officer? I kind of went back and forth. Okay. Um, I was I went first went to the police academy, uh, but then, interestingly enough, uh, right before graduation, they discovered that I was just 18 and they could not license an 18-year-old. Oh, yeah. uh, so then I became a corrections officer for a couple years, uh, first in a male maximum security facility. Then they... Uh, wanted to change things up and so they moved people around and I got transferred to the women's facility and I wanted to go back to the male maximum security facility. Okay the, well I gotta ask you about that. So, so you're 18 and gonna be a cop get 
they can't license you because you're too young. And so they go, oh, you're too young to be a cop, so let's put an 18-year-old girl in a, in a male maximum security prison. I mean, what's that yeah. like? I mean, that must be... That must have been just ridiculous. I mean... To me, it would... It, I did not know at the time, because when you're that age, you don't know so. that you're young, yeah. you think you're mature, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. you're, you know, you're 18. Uh, so uh, at the time, I just took it on. That was my job. That was the profession. And so I acted accordingly. Wow. Um, and, uh, but what, uh, to survive though, you have, or at least what I found I had to do is you follow the rules. You don't let people... Um, skate by the rules, but then you're, but also be fair. So don't be harsh or overly harsh if you don't, uh, don't need to respect the individuals and they'll respect you. And indeed what I found in my experience there is that for those officers who I saw who did bend the rules is then the inmates would always want them to bend the rules and push them further and further. Right. And so I found is if you just follow the rules, you respect them, don't go too far and you'll survive. It was the women I didn't like working with when well, I was yeah. transferred to the women's facility. So uh, be- so, yeah. Because the male uh, inmates, if you follow the rules, they know the rules, and they'll finally leave you alone. The women would always ask you and challenge oh, okay. the rules and complain. and So, so the guys it, will try it once and then kind of give up and yes. just, you know, go with the status quo. But, yeah, the <laughs> Get pushed a little harder. And was that a maximum security prison as well, the female one? Uh, the female they had, because there are relatively few females, is the the uh, maximum and medium were to, almost together, even right. though they were somewhat separate. It was still one common control room, so you could, as officers, you kind of worked both of them. And was that problematic at all uh, in terms of sort of uh, keeping keeping a hold of the, of the prisoners, the fact that you had the, the medium and maximum together, or was that kind of a bit of a moot point? It wasn't because women inmates are different than males in other ways as well, mm-hmm. and including their less security risks. So um, the security level of the maximum versus medium was not significantly different. The major, um, well, just in terms of because it was one facility, uh, the major difference was the maximum security females were all one person to one cell. In the medium block, then uh, there was maybe 12 in one kind of pod. Okay. Uh, but otherwise, every time they went out, they were, they were, um, the security was the same when they left that facility. And I mean, I don't know too much about, <clears throat> excuse me, how about um, sort of the things to watch out for in, in the prisons. Um, but specifically, what are sort of, I mean, I would imagine contraband is probably a big one in the male prisons. Is that a big, big thing in the female prisons as well? Not that I recall, uh, but again, it's, it's uh, yeah, I don't recall the, for the difference there, but um, certainly one of the issues was to try to prevent contraband. Now, it was easier where I was because there was not contact visits from the outsiders. Okay. So they were all behind a, you know, screen and um, cinder blocks and screens and what have you. So it was very difficult for um contraband be transferred right now what you had to pay attention to is you know your fellow officers to make sure that they are not um, as well as other workers in, entering the facilities and how prevalent is that kind of having the, the crooked guard is that something that just gets really played out uh or played up rather in the media or is it actually like no like it's a bit of an issue i think it's cultural so that it will vary by institution okay. uh it d- cultural in the sense of how easy is it to bring in 
Um, and some uh, some institutions, they're much more lax with trusting others, or it could s simply be institutionalized, where there's a large block of uh, prison guards who are bringing in contraband, and others are just may who are not participatory, but may be just ignoring it in order to get by. Because one of the issues there, in terms of trusting your fellow guards, is they have your 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 life is on the line sometimes, and mm -hmm. they have your back. And so sometimes it could simply be the ignoring is well, but that's the person who's going to back me up when something happens, and so I'll let them get by. In other institutions, though, where um, any disorder or the ignoring the rules by the guards may simply not be accepted at all. And so therefore in those institutions, there might be a little bit or very little problem. Um, in my institution, I now look back and, uh, so I would claim, you know, there was no problem, um, with guards having issues with contraband or contravening the rules. But now in retrospect, I wonder if I just simply <laughs> was not aware of it. I certainly was not involved in it. Um, and did not ignore it and would pro would not have. I think, I, again, being young at the time, uh, I was a rule follower, and so I think I would have reported it, but just I don't have any recollection of that being an issue. That's interesting, I guess, too, because even if it was going on, it was, well, yeah, if it was going on, it was hush-hush enough that it wasn't obvious to yourself, you know, kind of on the outside looking Correct. in. So that's interesting, too. And so, right, so you spent how long as a, so between being an officer and a, a police officer and a corrections officer, a few years or? About two years each. Okay, yeah. And then after that is when you decided. I went to law school. Okay. Oh, but I have an interesting story that I just thought oh, of. Yeah. Uh, so when I was a uh, corrections officer in the male maximum security prison, one of the inmates at the time was my own brother. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> what would that have been like? So my brother had had uh, issues with the law for since he was uh, even before a teenager, and he was emancipated as a youngster, which means that uh, he was taken away from the uh, parental authority of my parents and ceded to the state. So he'd had issues with the law for a while. Uh, I obviously went a different direction, but I adored him then. I still adore him now. We just took different trajectories in yeah. life. Wow. Uh, so because he was also an inmate in the same facility, then obviously when I was on duty, I could not, uh, was prevented from going to the facility that he was in. Keep, keep track <laughs> yeah, it's of kind that, of a but... conflict of interest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, so anyway, so after that then, <laughs> um, heading into law school, where'd you go to law school? Were you in the States? Uh, the University of Texas. Okay. And that's where you're from, right? I grew up in Florida, okay. uh, but from in terms of after going to law school there, I kind of stayed in Texas for quite a long, long okay. time. Right. And how, what was that like? Uh, law school was a challenge, and that's why I wanted it. was an intellectual challenge. Um, law school there was very competitive, um, and I found, like uh, many of my own law students, is the first year was very difficult because you have to... To be successful in law school and to think like a lawyer is you have to change how your mind thinks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the first year, I recall, is a significant challenge to change how I was thinking in terms of having a much more critical perspective, logical perspective, and develop the skill about argumentation and be able, be able to argue both sides. Um, and to also have a mindset that you're representing your client and you're doing the best job for your client. So you may not believe in the argument you're making, but you make uh, your job is to make the best one you can on behalf of your client. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is that, yeah, even if you don't feel it, 
you know, you still have to, you still have to do your job. And, and, yes, and, and be convincing and make people believe that you do feel it that way, even though in the background is, you might think otherwise. Or even if you have, uh, on behalf of one client, you may make an argument and then on behalf of another client have to make an entirely opposite argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the fun part about law, though, is that you have to, you do have to, and, and the thing that's crucial is that you do, like you said, both sides but even when you're making your own argument, that argument was constructed having the other side's arguments in mind, too. Because, I mean, you really do have to, you know, anticipate what the other side's going to say and then prepare on your, on your own side how you're going to challenge that. And so it does get, you know, pretty interesting pretty quick. Yeah, and... they give the arguments, the potential counter-arguments, the loopholes, anticipating the other side's argument um, and being able to combat that. Yes. And so as a police officer and corrections officer, I mean, you're right on the front lines of really, because we all have our preconceived notions, right? And, and we just figure what the media tells us and, and just our own kind of thoughts and beliefs about how these systems actually operate. I would imagine as soon as, I mean, it probably wouldn't have taken very long for you to realize after being in law school, like, oh, like we really need to, we really need to fix some things. Some things aren't going so well. I mean, what do you think about that? No, I was never very ideological. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. So, no, I didn't have a mindset of going out and changing the world. Uh, I did think, though, because um, before I went to law school, certain family members, who I won't name, had said, "There's we have too many lawyers. We don't need more. And I'm, what I thought was, <laughs> but th there's always a need for good lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to go out and be a good lawyer. Right. And after... Law school, th uh, th was it three years or four years at the time? Three years. Three years, okay. And what was your undergrad degree? Uh, po political science. Uh, okay. And the only purpose for that is uh, I was working as a full-time police officer when I was getting my undergraduate degree, and I needed the most flexible program in terms of scheduling. Because <laughs> yeah. as a police officer, you don't work normal hours. Right. And so I fell into poli-sci simply because there were a few prerequisites. Um, they had classes at various campuses around where I was both morning and at night, and so it offered the most flexibility. Uh, that being said, um, at the time I knew that I wanted to go to law school, and law school did not have a prerequisite what kind of undergraduate program that you went to through. Uh, but at the same time, as a liberal arts degree, poli-sci, I think it still had value in terms of my life and, how, and my perspective, and um, going to law school at you know, paved my way in terms of political science. You still engage in certain things like debate. You pay attention to what you, to words, the connotation of words and what have you. And a little experience in history, which is, I think, also important in the law. Uh, because even though we're teaching new lawyers how to go out in, into the world and new laws will be created, in some sense, though, they can learn from the past what laws there had been before and how they worked well or did not work well. So the past can part inform the future yeah definitely and uh well i mean if, even if you think of just looking at case precedent that's the whole point is that the the past is dictating the future right and in, in the precedent that it sets and decision making yes and it has a significant role but note that even though precedent even precedent from the united states supreme court for example or the uh, uk supreme court or whatever the particular jurisdiction's highest court is can still change they may change their minds and say that precedent, we're going to overrule that. So there's still opportunities to argue against, you know, significant court rulings. Um, and there's also uh, the ability to argue even against statutes, 
for example, arguing a statute is unconstitutional or violates human rights law. And so there are ways that, you know, the law has, um, a, in the past law has a certain weight, but then things can and should sometimes change in the future. Yeah, it's funny, like when you think about kind of old laws, like I, I had no idea about the rule of thumb. I mean, that's <laughs> such a common expression and never knew where it originated from. That actually originates. It's an old English law. And I think it's actually still, I can't remember if it's actually still in the law. But uh, yeah, the, the rule of thumb was that you could, quote unquote, discipline <laughs> your, your wife and, and children with a switch that's no bigger than your thumb. Width-wise. Yeah, so notice how gendered that is, because you say stated it correctly. It yeah. was a male prerogative. Um, and it was not it never statutory. It was uh, part of the common law. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, really interesting when you start looking at things. But uh, And so when you were in, so kind of wrapping up law school, um, well, obviously you're interested in the criminal justice system, being that you were working in it um, as an officer. Um was there anything in law school that sort of pushed you to keep going into the criminal route? Because when you graduated, you went into corporate for a while. And was that just sort of, you just got a good opportunity and just took that, took the corporate gig? No, I never intended to go into criminal law. And the reason is, again, these pre-existing notions. Um, the reason, in part, I didn't want to be a prosecutor because... As a police officer, I saw prosecutors make deals when I thought they shouldn't make deals. I thought they mm. weren't strict enough, and so I wasn't going to compromise my values of, of doing deals with criminals. Uh, and then I also <laughs> could, didn't think I could be a, a legitimate defense attorney because I also didn't believe in my clients. So right. even though I've mentioned that you had to make the best arguments on behalf of your clients, is I did not want to have criminals, as, or at least alleged criminals, as my clients. <laughs> Um, so I, the intent was not to, to continue in criminal law. Um, and I did get a, a wonderful opportunity in corporate law. Um, and so I was able to take that. It was with a large law firm that was going to allow me to do large contracts. And that was at the time appealing to me to be working on big deals. And so you did that for how long? The corporate uh, gig? Well, I was there not long because then I got um, picked out from a federal judge to clerk for a year. Oh, okay. Um, and so I didn't ended up not going back. The, my first job was with a law, large law firm. Um, then I went with the judge as a clerkship, which was a wonderful opportunity in part, it was in large part because I had a wonderful judge. And um, so saw the law from that perspective. Now that was interesting, but half her cases were criminal. So I kind of got back into the right, criminal yeah. field, although obviously as a clerk to a judge, not representing clients, but still dealing with some criminal issues. And then after that, as I had an invitation to return to the law firm, but then I saw an advertisement as for an in-house counsel with a corporation. And I thought that's a, another interesting trajectory that would offer me uh, the ability to work on big deals, but also to travel and to do other types of law other than corporate. Okay. And where did you go with that? So, that, yeah, you said that you traveled a lot with that gig. I did. Um, so that was about eight years or so until, oh, okay. as I had mentioned before, my company eventually got bought out by another company and the whole atmosphere changed. And that brought me, Ben, back to academia. Right. And then at that point is when you thought, well, I guess you, you must have kind of faced a bit of a crossroads there because sticking with your company didn't feel so great anymore. And 
what are you going to do now kind of thing. So what was that like? Uh, I saw it as a new opportunity um, to do something different in life. Uh, so I knew, realized for a while that I had been making money for people who were already rich, which, you know, such as <laughs> the investors. And um, I had made a good amount of money as well uh, and done what I'd wanted to do with it. And so that's why I wanted to do something that would kind of give back to society. I know that sounds highfalutin, uh, but I did want to do something that was um, was not just making money for the rich, but um, making a positive influence on criminal justice policy. Well, admittedly, at the same time, getting into a subject matter that I was innately interested in, which was criminal justice. Right. And um, you and I have talked off the air about lots of different kind of topics and things that you're interested in and, and things that you've written about. And um, I'll let you choose. You want to go domestic violence first or criminal justice first? Because i got questions for both. <laughs> well, um, it makes sense to do domestic violence because sure. of the trajectory that I just mentioned. Perfect. Um, in the PhD program, when I entered, you, you do, there is a dissertation, which here is a thesis. So we just have flipped the names of those. But in any event, uh, you have to do a, a significant research paper. And I chose domestic violence. And I think one of the reasons I chose that was that I recalled as being a police officer, one of the confounding types of cases were domestic violence calls. Um, I recall as a police officer, because at that time we were not trained in the special issues of what's happening in domestic violence cases. And so I was still interested to understand, for example, why in the many calls, and police respond to many calls that are domestic violence related then and still now, is why, for example, um, the victims, even if they wanted you to make an arrest at the time, often later on did not want to cooperate. Uh, why the victims often re recanted their stories. Why even if um, you removed the perpetrator from the house, um, often the victims would accept them back into the home and then violence would then occur again. Uh, and so I wanted to understand those issues. And so it doing a dissertation on issues related to domestic violence seemed to be a obvious topic for me. And, and then in terms of that is I indeed looking at the research and interacting with victims of domestic violence and those who worked with them, I found out quite a lot about all those myths of domestic violence and why women and um, women as victims did things that to outsiders didn't necessarily make sense. But if once you understand more of the context of it, then what they're doing or not doing seems to be much more rational than outsiders would expect. And so that's what got me onto the domestic violence trajectory, and I teach domestic violence still today. And what year would that have been when you were working on that domestic violence bit? Uh, about 2001? Yeah. And I mean... 2002? And just to think, like, how... So I took the class last year domestic violence and it's funny because i imagine you'll you'll agree um in that something they've made great progress on some things but lots of things you're still just stuck trying to figure figure out how to deal with it and the thing that i certainly realized after taking the module shortly you know just a few weeks in you really notice that domestic violence is so unique in the challenges you only see those types of challenges in domestic violence. And like you were saying, with victims being what would appear as difficult on the outside looking in, 
but like you said, it's actually quite rational because it's survival. And it's just, there's so many things interacting with each other that causes, you know, these victims to, they're just trying to survive. And then if you throw kids in the picture or pets, as was <laughs> interestingly brought up um, in the module as well. Pet abuse, yes. Yeah. Or the uh, use of pets to abuse in order to control the partner, yes. Yeah. And it's just so difficult to deal with. And now the UK recently passed the coercive control legislation. Yeah. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, you probably know more about that than I do. <laughs> yes. So uh, the UK is one of the very few countries, um, the, the pre-existing country that had has a criminal law that involves coercive control is Tasmania in Australia. So the UK is at the forefront of um, a broader than Tasmania coercive control law. So coercive control is, at least in the conceptualization of the UK law, is it's then criminalized for a partner to engage in multiple acts of coercive control over their partner in which it has a significant effect on the partner's daily life. Uh, the way it's progressive is it goes beyond physical violence to things such as emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse. Um, it's controversial because it does go beyond acts of physical violence. And, um, but at the same time, is it's a recognition that some of the harms and sometimes the more significant harms to victims are the psychological and emotional abuse, for example. Now, this is not a one-size-fits-all, meaning that some victims will say the physical abuse harmed them worse, but others will say no, it, even though that was significant, the financial and emotional and the psychological abuse was more harmful, in part because it's more long-standing, um, that the effects on them may be felt longer than um, the physical abuse. Um, now, what's interesting there is that so a lot of times in domestic violence, one of the reasons that it's different is you can have very well-intended policies that consistently have unintended consequences, and this law is one of those that has unintended consequences. What we see in the UK um, after it was went into effect at the end of 2015 is significant differences among the 43 police forces in the UK about enforcement of it. So some police forces have made almost no arrests, even though coercive control exists around the country, while other forces have made quite a number of arrests. And in part, it's, it's the cultural acceptance in individual forces as to whether they think this being coercive control rises to the level of a criminal offense. But there's also a difference in the education of their forces because this is something that they need to educate their officers about what coercive control means. One of the unique aspects about the coercive control law is there's no real definition of what qualifies. And indeed, that was on purpose um, by the parliament, which is they didn't want to have a discrete list of acts that violated the law because then there would be loopholes. And certainly, they are perpetrators who engage in coercive control are very creative in how they do it. And so they, uh, the worry was that they would be missing this, missing things if they were too definitive in the definition of it. Yeah, th that's the interesting thing is that when you describe what coercive control was, that's an, it's intentionally broad. And for that very reason that perpetrators are, you know, sucks to say it, actually pretty smart at figuring out what methods of abuse benefit them. Um, 
And that's why domestic violence is tricky to, to deal with. They do. So a lot of perpetrators experiment. They experiment with what works to control this partner. And what doesn't work, they often drop that. And then what does work, for example, if pet abuse works, then they'll keep engaging the things that works because the goal is to have power and control over the other partner. And that, so that there are very uh, many ways, as you mentioned, that domestic abuse is different than other types of abuse. Uh, it's certainly different than partner violence, for example, because of the relationship, because of the love. Um, the other thing perpetrators often do is it's, it's very rare for them to be abusive on, for example, the first date or the first time they meet them, because without that relationship, then the other person's probably not going to see them again. Uh, so they often intentionally um, will kind of woo the other, um, engage in various acts of that are, uh, purport to be loving and kind and almost grooming the victims um, to get them into a loving relationship, a com often a committed relationship, and that's when the abuse often starts. Well, that's just like, how do you kill a frog, right? You don't throw it into a pot of boiling water. It's going to jump out right away. You put it in a pot of normal, you know, just regular temperature water, then just slowly increase the temperature until by the time they realize what's happening, it's too late. And now there's all these I've never heard of that out. analogy. Can I use that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting things that I thought, and you mentioned this earlier when you're talking about the amount of calls that you would respond to uh, that were domestic violence calls, has that changed very much? I mean, that would have been over 20 years ago. And based on the statistics that we were looking at in the class, it's sad and it's really awful how prevalent it is. Yes, so the uh, recent statistic in the UK is one out of eight every one out of eight police calls are domestic violence related or domestic abuse related. Yeah, uh, so that's a it lot. Is, <laughs> so we we in the domestic violence advocacy community have um, seen great strides, um, but then there's still domestic abuse is quite prevalent. We like to think that we got a good handle on this, and you know it doesn't happen nearly as often and. It's like, no, actually, it still goes on quite often. And that's one out of eight police calls. Okay, well, how about the number that doesn't even get reported at all? Right. You know, that's a significant number as well. Right. Well, what we don't necessarily know from that is that does that mean that the prevalence of domestic abuse is up versus are victims and others simply more likely to call police than they were before? Um, and the latter could very well be true because... Um, of the you know multiple campaigns where the government is saying this is a problem and you know victims don't deserve this and tr and bringing it from the privacy of the home into the public sphere and is saying you know this is wrong uh, so it could very well be simply people are more likely to report than they used to be um, but in terms of um, statistics there are many issues with how uh, you can find, if you want to s indicate, for example, if you want to claim that women are as abusive of men, you can certainly <laughs> find yeah. uh, reports that provide that kind of support for you. But what you have to be careful of is digging down is how are they doing that kind of study? What questions are they asking? How are they asking? Are they seeing context? The other reason that prevalent studies are um, can change is Notice that I've been talking about domestic violence sometimes, but also talking about domestic abuse, and those are not identical. So at least in the UK now is they have, uh, in recent years, the government has changed the definition from a physical violence-oriented definition to one that's uh, abuse-related, which is much broader and, again, does not 
is no longer limited to that violence. And so by definition, when you um, widened the scope of it from violence to abuse is now that by definition you have increased the prevalence because now you're, you're counting many more things uh, other than simply uh, acts of violence. But I have one to ask you a question. Mm. So what was interesting when I came here to the UK to teach domestic violence in the law, because I've taught it in the U.S., is generally in the U.S. I get a predominantly female student population in the class. And so here I've gotten a, a, a greater percentage of males, although I realize that there's a very limited number of modules to, for students to opt for, so it could just be um, the other classes were already closed. <laughs> but I'm wondering from your perspective as a young male coming into a domestic violence class, particularly one that um, relies heavily on a feminist perspective, is what was your thought? Were you... Uh, yeah, let me, I, yeah, I don't want to put words yeah, in your well, mouth. Yeah, well, I'll answer that in two parts. First, um, generally speaking, um, I think law, at least my year, seems pretty close to being 50-50 male-female, and I think, man, maybe even, I, I think it is more female, so I think it's about 60, 60-40. Um, so that's interesting that you would have in your class the, the way that would work out would be the other way. But personally couple things. Definitely because I want to go the criminal defense um, route, I figured take as many crim classes as I can. So that was number one. Number two was uh, domestic violence has always, sounds weird to say, but yeah, has always interested me in the sense that there's so, because my background is in psychology, I recognized as best as I could just from the outside looking in that there is a such a critical psychological element to the not only from the abuser's perspective but also from the victim's perspective as well and there's just so many nuanced just intricate little things that go on but in the dynamic and also when you expand not only the dynamic between the abuser and the victim but the abuser's family and the victim's family and then society at large so that's always been very interesting how how all these different groups interact with each other so that was the other thing and lastly one of the things that i always thought was interesting was certainly in high school and university looking at the way that the, the guys manipulating the, the girls sort of manipulating them for sexual purposes or just being not nice to each other you know maybe not bordering at that criminal level but certainly un, unsavory. Well, there's the a word for least. it. Do you know what the word is? I can't remember it. I'm, I'm trying it's, so hard to reach for it. That's it's called I negging. There you go. That's it, yeah. And uh, and the funny thing is that negging is, it's actually used as a pickup tool. Yes. That's the weird thing. Yeah, it's promoted as it. Yeah. A very, in a very gendered way as well. Very much so. Yeah, that it certainly is if you want to pick up the attractive girl, you kind of give her the backhanded compliments, which nagging, and even though they're they're not really backhanded compliments, they're they're I would say they're definitely more mean than than backhanded compliments. But anyway, you do that, and the point is is that or the the theory is is that she will then try she will gravitate towards you in order to seek but, approval. Yes, and uh, <laughs> like when you just think about that dynamic, that's at stage one attraction. And that's this weird dynamic that's already in play. 
I mean, it's really, ugh, it's crazy stuff. But yeah, anyway, long story short, to answer your question, it, it certainly came from just more of my personal kind of interest and background in it. And I think it's also one of those things that even though it does get talked about much more openly now than before, I'm sure you would agree with that, it still is not much known about it, and it still really isn't that out in the open. And, I mean, the coercive control law did a good job at sort of saying, hey, there's so many different things going on here. Let's sort of talk about that. But, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> um, so I've been working in this area, what, 30 years now, and certain things have not changed, such as yeah. the same myths that the public has about domestic abuse and what have you, why doesn't she just leave and all that. But then certain things have changed in terms of, we have become aware of certain things in the last few years that did not pre-exist or was not part of our expert knowledge. Uh, so one of the things you had just mentioned was the role of bullying by young people and its relationship with later um, abusing one's partner. Uh, we are more aware the prevalence of uh, dating abuse between college-age kids, as you were t discussing, as well as even, even teenage kids. We're more aware of it. Um, we're more aware of the role of strangulation in these cases um, than we were before and the purpose of strangulation and how lethal it is. Uh, and so some states, some countries have passed, um, because of that, specific legislation where strangulation is treated as a separate offense uh, because it is so lethal and it is a direct exercise of extreme control over the other person. So it's, it's a strategy that are more dangerous perpetrators use that we have just really come to realize in the last uh, maybe decade. Uh, we are more aware of stalking and the role of technology in stalking. So even in stalking, often it will exist often in uh, current abusive relationships, but then also with ex-partners. So one of the, for example, myths is that if the victim simply ended the relationship, the abuse would just end, and commonly that's not the case. Uh, for one is the uh, victims attempting to leave the relationship is the most lethal time for them, the more likely they're going to be killed. But also the abuse often continues, even if they successfully separated from a physical perspective. Now the perpetrators are, ex um, are stalking their ex-partners using technology such as putting GPS trackers on their cars or somehow uh, triggering the GPS or other devices on their phones and continuing even often unknown to the victim of tracking them, knowing their whereabouts. Um, now we have the role of revenge porn as well. So the abuse can continue even if they leave, but in other ways. And so we're becoming more aware of, for example, the technology aspect of it. Uh, a recent one that has uh, just been coming to light, for example, is the use of home technologies to uh, make the victims feel that they're going crazy, doing things such as um, exploiting in the home, turning lights on and off, turn, uh, raising the garage door up and down, and the victim sometimes, if particularly if they're not aware that the technology is in the home, thinks that they're going crazy, uh, which is called gaslighting. So This is actually a term for it. There is, <laughs> oh and that comes God. from an old movie. And so... 
um, we continue to learn things. And again, it's the, some of these things are and other examples of perpetrators being very creative in how they abuse others. Now, the law is, you know, slowly and kind of depends on what country is, in some cases, trying to track those kinds of things, such as uh, some, uh, so, uh, for example, uh, supplementing stalking laws to try to cover some of these uh, that behaviors that can be very damaging to the individual victims. Uh, new laws such as on revenge porn some countries have to be able to then criminally address those kinds of harms to the victims. So we're still learning in this field and unfortunately continue to learn about new um, abusive behaviors of perpetrators and how they uniquely impact, negatively impact victims, victims, children, family members, and others. Yeah. On the um, previous podcast with Dr. Taggart, one of the things we were talking about is, boy, are people creative at finding ways on how to hurt each other. Yeah. I mean, there is no, it, it's, it's honestly amazing. I mean, the fact that gaslighting, like, holy cow. I mean, just and think about how new that technology is, too. I mean, all the, you know, home, home stuff is probably about the last three, five, you know, three to five years. And there's a, and they're already on it. You know, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, and it really blows your mind. And, and also, you know, at how, again, how difficult it is. You're trying to fight an enemy that's constantly changing and morphing and, and finding new ways to, to get away with doing some really awful things. Yes. And the other thing we would be coming to realize as well is how often mass shooters um, ha have a domestic violence background. And I read the abstract of one of your papers before coming in here. But yeah, tell us a bit about that from the from the mass shooter perspective. Yes, yeah, so the the connection to having an abusive background, um, again, we're just starting to learn about the existence of it and just starting to theorize about what connections there may be. And in part, my guess is that um, still the power and control has some aspect to it because the mass shooter is obviously trying to exercise some control over you know many not instead of just one partner in a domestic context, uh, but trying to have some kind of control over their environment uh, and certainly over other people's lives. There's also a common element of anger there. What we see in domestic, perpetra domestic abuse perpetrators is often, in part, they're acting out of fear and out of fear that they don't have a lot of self-control and control over others. And so it's almost as if acting out, trying to gain some kind of power and legitimacy and attention in the world on a grander scale than within the home. So there's some of those common trajectories. As well as there may be a common link about being abused or witnessing abuse as young people. But again, we, since we're just realizing that there's not a lot of studies on it, so I'm just kind of hypothesizing based on some of the evidence that we already have. Yeah, the, I mean, there is a lot of commonality there. I mean, the, it's just at the general premise, it's power and control, whether that's over your partner or over other people who you think have done you wrong somehow, and then you go out and execute them all. And what also seems crazy, too, is just how frequent these things seem to occur versus 10 years ago. I mean, I suppose access to weapons in the States is a big issue, but there's been access to weapons for a long time. It's not like it's a new thing. 
Well, and, and you're right to point out that the U.S. is different because of access to guns, uh, with the supposed Second Amendment uh, having mm -hmm. a personal right to access. But the difference is the access to automatic weapons or the ability to change semi-automatic weapons in, and make them automatic. And so once you have an automatic weapon, that increases the death count. Um, and so that is a new thing. Um, as well as what we're seeing is mass killing perpetrators using other types of weapons. Um, and so in some countries where guns are not as accessible, and certainly in some countries where automatic guns are not as accessible, is there because in part the role of the internet is learning how to create deadly devices through other methods and with, and with other uh, tools and items. But what's interesting is even that doesn't stop some of them. So we're starting to see a different trajectory as well today for mass killers in using just ordinary objects such as renting vans and driving vans through crowds. And there's nothing illegal about a van. Uh, but using, creatively using what's available to them in a manner um, to create as much destruction as possible. And, and that's like what we were saying earlier about the domestic violence thing, is that you're, you're trying to fight an enemy who keeps changing its methods on how to carry out some awful things, carry out some awful acts. And yeah, it's like renting a van. How on earth could that have been prevented? Like really, like if you look back, it's like, it's it's so, I mean... Now you know moving forward that it's been done, like, okay, this is something that can happen again. But the first, you know, one or two times where it happens. Yeah, so that's a kind of um, something else that has changed is learning from social media and the Internet. It worked, you know, using a van, driving into a crowd work for this guy. Oh, I can do that as well. That you didn't have before the Internet age, that kind of learning methods. And And one of the things that kind of blew my mind with the New York attack. So I, I got a video sent to me. And so the van attack, within three hours of it happening, people had the video on their phones and could send it out willy-nilly, distributing it. I mean, that is crazy fast. That's how I found out about it, was I saw I clicked on, you know, oh, got a text, look at this video. What the hell is this? And it's like, you know, a bunch of people getting hit. I mean, it's awful, awful thing. And within hours of the event actually happening, you had it on your phone. I mean, so when you talk about, you know, data sharing and stuff like that, is that how instantly that stuff gets put out there and it's out there. Once it once the cat's out of the bag, it's out of the bag. And the, the weird thing about revenge porn, I remember when I was coming out of elementary school. So I would have been, yeah, I, I would have been like 11, 12 and I remember that was when it was, I believe there was a couple websites that had popped up, but that's sort of when it first started. Providing a platform. Yeah. I mean, they, the, the whole point of the website was, hey, it's, it's homemade stuff, but obviously, like you mentioned, the revenge point thing, well, that was people using it as a method to really carry out some awful abuse on, on another person. Because it seems like it's definitely, it still happens. Um, but is that still a relatively prevalent form of abuse, is using that revenge porn avenue? Uh, we, are, we are more aware of it now, but there are no statistics that I know, in part because that's another crime where victims don't want to report because right. uh, they're almost outing themselves, and so a lot of them are hoping that nobody sees it. Um, some of them are probably not aware of it, it, it being out there. 
Um, but you know, so far I don't know that there are prevalent studies to, to know how frequent it is. And as a victim, um, what do you do? Because like, you make a good point. The victim might not even know that it's out there because you just post a video online and it's out there. You don't need that person's permission. Um, oops. But what do you do? Um, what's, yeah, what can you do as a victim if you find out that, okay, this is out there? How do you tackle that? There are, uh, so countries have different laws on this. So some countries have laws that allow victims to require that um, the websites uh, or whoever's hosting it to take it down. Um, some of them are, who are uh, more progressive, their laws allow the victims to do that anonymously, some, or at least for their identity, sorry, not to be known outside of that. Uh, but that can vary dramatically by jurisdiction in terms of how aware they are and whether they want to give certain avenues to the victims to do something about it. Now, usually or often it's based on um, a notion of privacy, an invasion of privacy, uh, rather than necessarily a criminal act. But some countries have criminalized it, uh, such as the UK has a relatively recent law on that, but that can vary. Right. With the pet abuse, I had never heard of that until taking the module. What's going on with that? Yeah, so that's a, a relatively recent awareness of ours as well um, as some responses. So, for example, so perpetrators, particularly if their victim or the children really loves the pet, then you know, abusing the pet is going to be something that's very harmful and can be, uh, again, a way to control them. But what we've realized is that some of our victims will not go to shelters if they can't take their pet because they love their pets. And so some shelters um, are allowing that. Uh, so that as a lure to get, you know, the victim to come with their pet. Uh, but, you know, some of us just adore our pets, so it's almost a family member. So it makes sense if you understand it. And uh, I, another recent thing I, I've seen out of Australia that seems to be, um, you know, a novel, uh, at least these days, is to, um, particularly where their shelters will not accept the pets, is to have people available to... Uh, foster the pet during the period of time for the victim to be able to find, you know, to get their lives back on track, to find a, perhaps a home or a place where they then are in a place and state and time that they can accept their pets back. Uh, so that's an interesting That actually, yeah, I like service. that. That's actually a pretty elegant solution. There, there's yeah. a story of, this is a, from the U.S. where it was an ex-partner um, and the, the female victim. She would go out uh, and Hopefully I get the story mostly right. But the idea is uh, every morning when she'd go out to get in her car to go to work, she would see a stick in the driveway. But every morning it was in a different place. <laughs> um, and, oh and so she thought, I'm going crazy. Why yeah. do I keep noticing this stick and it seems to be moving? And they eventually, um, I believe she got a camera, put a camera up to find out what was going on because it happened overnight. And it turned out the ex every night was coming and moving that darn stick. To make you know make her appear crazy yeah that's because <laughs> who would believe that story if you report it to others there's well, a stick that keeps moving every night and that's sort of the the horrific beauty of it is just that is that you 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 do something and it's like what's she gonna do that's yeah, awful of course i mean geez yeah domestic violence always kind of it always just blows my mind it's just like you, you really have to stop and think and, and it blows my mind how messed up the abuser has to be to continue to carry out that like to make someone suffer like that 
from from the most severe side to but even just moving a stick i mean that could drive you nuts because you get paranoid you think sometimes am i losing my mind is someone actually messing with me just to go out and abuse someone like that it really just blows my mind at how devastatingly broken that per i mean you're not you're not even a person i mean it's just well so that's awful. one of the common um uh, foundations between domestic abusers and our t- and some at least some of our terrorists or our mass shooters is they think they've been wronged that there's some ideological complaint that they have and often they turn it into somebody else's it's somebody else's fault somebody is doing me wrong mm-hmm. and so it's they just often justify these kinds of behaviors well yeah i mean if you read which yeah don't read any of them but if you do read like any of those manifestos that any of those asshole shooters leave behind that's always the situation is that and a, a lot of anger towards women generally but even more broadly speaking they are the victim of someone or something and therefore i'm gonna go do this and all will be right at that point a lot of the times too like when you read some stories about like oh you know the the, the guy who shot up the the high school it kind of blows my mind in a lot of ways it's like because it seems so obvious that person was just such a such a nut and everyone's like because there's always that person i mean i'm sure everyone has like that person who like if they you know oh jimmy's in the news and it's like oh yeah not surprising there there's always that element too but on the other hand there's always those people who fly under the radar both for you know the domestic abuse side and also for the the shooter side like you know people just can't they're so good at covering up their own craziness and making people believe that they're just normal people. It's, it's shocking and it's difficult because how do you how do you fight that? How do you get ahead of that before before things go south? Yeah, so a lot of, uh, not all, but a lot of our perpetrators are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that the personality and the face that they show to their family uh, is different than what they show to the other, you know, the, the world. Although some of, to some extent, some of us do that as well as the, person that we portray to our uh, loved ones may not be necessarily the same public face that we put on. They just take it to a different extreme. Um, But it certainly explains those, you know, two different personalities, why a lot of cases when victims do want to report, they, the, what they confront with family, you know, other external family members and friends is they don't believe it because they're not seeing that kind of person. Uh, They don't see that image. Once they enter the home, they may turn into a different person mm-hmm. that, that the world does not always see. And and even within the abuse cycle, um, I forget the proper terms for it, but um, basically it's the cycle of the the abuse. So whether whatever the, the method of abuse is, but the abuse is carried out and then it's the, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. There's that cycle. Even There's the Jekyll Hyde dynamic even within the abuse dynamic. Uh, there is. So, yeah, the cycle of violence is basically tension building, the explosion, and then the honeymoon period. Although, That's it. Uh, honeymoon even, period. and this is common, and what victims often report is that that, um, that cycle goes quicker and quicker. The honeymoon period is shorter and shorter. Although, some, and then some women will say, I don't get any honeymoon period. Yeah. So, no one size fits all, even though we can, we do see some typologies and commonalities. And one of the biggest things I thought, too, really surprised me was the the family and you touched on that briefly the the family dynamic the fact that a lot of the times the families like you said well they don't see it but they don't believe it either why would the victim 
go to the police when, God, her own family doesn't even believe her. You know, that psychological element plays in too. Yes, a lot of times <clears throat> the uh, victim can't, uh, does not get the support and the sympathy, uh, which makes this difference. So if you were, for example, um, a victim of physical violence from a stranger and reported to other people, you'd probably be identified as a victim, given a lot of sympathy and believed. Uh, but once you say a you know, supposed loved one, partner did it, then they often don't get that same kind of reactions about being, uh, assuming the, their veracity as well as being labeled the victim. And it could be that, for example, the family members have something, you know, they may well love the partner as well, and so they may not want to believe it. But there are the, you know, that's partly why these cases are so difficult is they don't get the same kind of reaction as if, as when they report that they were victimized by a stranger, for example. Yeah, and, and there's also that, how could you let that, there's that victim blaming aspect too. Like if it's a stranger, it's a bit harder to put that on that person, but if it's you know, your partner or your mar your spouse, you know, it's like, well, you married, the you picked that person and, you know, now you got to kind of deal with it. Like there's almost that attitude as well, which is hard to. Yeah. I was reading, doing a reading, um, recently, um, where one of the victims said, you know, at one point, you know, I left him, I went to my parents, but then I returned to him. And when the next time he was violent and I called my parents and said, can I come over again? You know, my father said, no, it's, you returned to him. We told you not to. It's now your fault. You got, we're not taking you. Yeah. So, yes, the blame of the victim is a common one. So, you know, what is it that you did wrong? Um, how did, you know, what did you do to trigger him? Yeah, what did you, yeah, what did you do to trigger him into beating you? Yeah, oh, thanks for that. That's very helpful. <laughs> but it exists. I mean, and that's that's one of the challenges of it. And, yeah, and, it, and it's, again, it just speaks to that larger you know, people just think it's so black and white. Like, even when I hear, like, if there's a domestic abuse issue being discussed, and it's like, oh, why doesn't that person, why doesn't the victim just leave? It's like, oh, wow, thanks for that very nuanced assessment. It's like, well, I'll give you about 102 reasons why they can't or why they feel like they can't because that's what it feels like. You're so overwhelmed. Try all these different methods, and it just seems like the world around you is just suffocating you, and it just makes it so difficult to escape that. Well, I've, I have high hopes, maybe this is naive, that the world has learned something from the Harvey Weinstein, tr Weinstein trial, and that is that how common it is, so it, it, um, he, was being, you know, he was found guilty on two counts uh, related to uh, sexually victimizing two women who, after those incidents, were in contact with him, and I believe both of them, but at least some of the victims um, also later had consensual sex with him. And so that was a really hard case then to succeed on because of those later uh, reconnections with him. And the re you know, relevance of the domestic violence cases is even the, you know, a lot of our victims will say, yes, he abused me sexually or physically or emotionally, but yes, I returned to him and loved him and had consensual sex and what have you. And it's difficult to understand. And in that case, they... Uh, they were able to call an expert to explain the various ways or various reasons that victims would reconnect. You know, it doesn't make sense is we want to deny even to ourselves those horrible things. We often are self-delusional. In some sense, they, in, in other things we sometimes do for our abusers is we want to distinguish the bad behavior from the person. Mm-hmm. 
So I uh, use this analogy of um, a parent physically disciplining their young child, where the young child may actually hate the discipline. Uh, they may think it was overly severe compared to their transgression, but they generally still love the parent. And so I think that's somewhat happens in these cases as well, is distinguish the actions that we hate from the person that we may still love. I know um, in high school and university, that is the most common thing I hear when people are talking about problems with their partner is, oh, that's not him, or oh, that's not her. It's like, yeah, I don't know, man. Start thinking about it a bit because you're right. People just have, you know, they can't, it's almost like the truth that the person that they're with is not who you thought they were. I mean, it's just too difficult to bear. And so, yeah, there, there's that cognitive dissonance there where they just separate and they go, oh, well, you know, he, he does some things that aren't bad, but he, but he's a nice person. That's not how it works. If you're a nice person, you do nice things for the most part. Obviously, people make mistakes, but you have to draw the line somewhere. You touched on the Weinstein thing there. What was I, I didn't see it. I, the last time I saw a, an update was on the weekend where the, the jury was dismissed because they were deadlocked on the serious charges. And then I guess, yeah, was that yesterday, the day before they found him guilty? What was he found guilty of? Because there were five charges. So was he convicted of the the less severe ones? Yes. Okay. Uh, one was a sexual assault charge, and the other one was a rape in the third degree charge. Okay. Um, and then there were, uh, the state, interestingly, has a crime predatory sexual action or something like that, relatively unique. Um, and they were, that was the more severe offenses. I think there was at least two of those that he was found not guilty of. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, you bring up a good point with those ones is that the victims reconnected with him um, after the fact. So the fact that they got a conviction, I mean, that does show some progress for sure. That Because, um, again, it's, it's difficult to sit down one-on-one, -on -one, talk to someone with it. Uh, talk to someone about that and you could you know relay the message across but to convince 12 people unanimously that this guy is a predator I mean that, that is a pretty that that is a good step forward it seems like in terms of getting that public acceptance and understanding that these issues are far more complex than than I think we want them to be I mean it, it's much easier just to think oh you know, blame the victim or, you know, just it, it's so easy to do and it's convenient to do because then you don't have to look at the ugly truth of it. But to do that is a disservice in the long run, because the, the, the longer you close your eyes to the darkness, the, the easier it is to overtake you. And we want it to we want to lower the, the rate of it. And also the the social aspect, too, that if you do it, you're going to be punished and ostracized, maybe not criminally, but even just in the, in the public eye, you know, for a guy like him, I mean, let's just say Weinstein was proven not guilty. There's no way this guy, he would have to hide under a rock for the rest of his life. I mean, there's no, I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I really can't see anybody would be at all accepting towards this guy after it came out to all the shit this guy did. I mean, I don't know. Thankfully, he's going away. And I think he's going to be tried in California as well. Uh, they crimes? are pr prosecuting him in California, yes. Are they trying him for rape there as well? Or is yes. It, okay, yeah. I I'm, I'm, imagine it's a handful of charges as well. Yeah, the, the issue with the number of charges is the statute of limitations uh, right. in states, which is um, statute of limitations generally indicates that for certain crimes, 
uh, you can only be prosecuted X period of time after the crimes occurred. Um, and so for a lot of the offenses, the statute, relevant statute of limitations have already passed. So in the Weinstein, through the context of the Weinstein thing, reluctant acquiescence is, um, okay, he was going to beat me if I said no, so I just consented to the sex, but I didn't want to agree, consent. Inside, you really don't. Well, it sounds like it was not voluntary consent. That's what it is, yeah. Uh, and that's Threat the other thing, or, yeah, in the Weinstein yeah. trial, though, that was not, I think, uh, addressed well enough is the idea that there is not, uh, of consent, that there should be consent on every sexual encounter, that there's not this, I, there should not be, and certainly in the law strictly, there is not this idea of ongoing consent. So even in a, um, a committed couple, there's not a consent that, um, no just is continuous. Consent. Yeah, yeah. That there is, needs to be consent on every encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of assumed that there is. Well, and even I can't remember how long ago, but even um, the statute in the UK, it wasn't illegal to rape your wife up until Correct. very recent. I don't. Do you remember the? I don't remember the year off the top of my head. I don't either. Um, but. <laughs> Recent, yeah, Sh- like shockingly recent, yes. considering how ridiculous that is. Because it was, yeah, it used to be considered um, in uh, that upon marriage, for example, the woman consented thereafter. That yeah. that was, you know, just that was ongoing, perpetual consent. Well, in terms of um, Harvey Weinstein's reputation, uh, I'm not sure it's a given that. Uh, he would be shamed forevermore, and so I'm trying to think of the name of the uh, one who is who had the many girl who he owned multiple properties in multiple countries. Oh, uh, Epstein. Yes, there yeah. you go. <laughs> Epstein, I've just been listening. Epstein to didn't kill himself. Um, that's my stance. Uh, his reputation was based mostly unsullied, even though he had many young victims. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. Like I said, like I was just like yeah, I I would hope. That he wouldn't be able, uh, Weinstein wouldn't be able to show his face ever again in the public sphere. But yeah, you're right. I certainly would hope so. And even Cosby. Like, if you think about Cosby, it's tarnished, but not like it should be, I don't oh, think. He has still many supporters. You yes. know, I mean, not like I think it should be. I mean, that guy, and he was a full-blown rapist. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. The f- worst end of the spectrum. And even then, people are like, oh, well, you know, excuses, excuses. There was a paper that you were, I alluded to it earlier, more of a public law approach to it, but you were talking about um, the Dallas shooter and the police's use of force, excessive or potentially excessive use of lethal force on him. So this was a story a few years ago, I believe it was uh, something like 2016, uh, where there was a uh, mass shooter in Dallas um, at a rally. And the police cornered him, and he would not give up. And so they eventually sent in a robot that was uh, uh, manned with a C4, which is an explosive. And then they detonated the C4 and blew up the mass shooter. And so um, I made a legal argument that that would appear to be excessive lethal force. Uh, so what I was doing there from a legal perspective is differentiating. So did the police have the right to use lethal force on him? And it appeared um, that they did. Uh, but my argument is that, that, that there's not just a one-off 
lethal force or any amount of lethal force, that there can be excessive lethal force, um, and that blowing somebody up with C4 in a confined space, uh, the effects that it had um, must have had on his body uh, could amount to excessive lethal force that was unnecessary in the circumstances. And so when you say that, um, obviously, yeah, you're making a legal argument, and the, the voices I can hear is, who gives a shit? They blew him up. He was, a, he was a mass shooter. The guy was awful. Who cares whether they blow him up or shoot him or what do you say to that? Uh, that we still have legal standards and rights. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other concern as well is um, what we're seeing is a bleed-in of tactics used in warfare into a domestic policing context. And that's what was an example of it. Using a robot manned with an explosive is something that otherwise we just saw on the, out on the you know, foreign battlefield in wars uh, that's now being used by a you know, domestic policing department. Um, and that's some, somewhat concerning to me that we're turning our domestic policing forces into these kind of more army, military-style confrontations with uh, citizens. Yeah, well, and, at the, and at the end of the day, they're civilians. Yes. I mean, you're a mass shooter, you're, you're a piece of crap, but you're a civilian of, well, at that point, it was the United States. Militarizing the police force, the domestic domestic police force is usually not a good thing <laughs> is that something because i was in the states is that something that seems to be happening more frequently in terms of those types of issues popping up with the police uh, i do see it in western countries um, this militarization of domestic policing in part because that the types of tools and weapons are being made available to domestic policing from military units. Often it's excess uh, surplus equipment. And so, um, you know, some militaries, unlike, you know, they had not done this mostly in the past, they had somehow gotten rid of that surplus in other ways. But now in some countries they're delivering it to the domestic policing forces. Um, although there is a rationale, I do see some rationale for that, and that is because of terrorism. That um, we have turned, it used to be that terrorism was generally the province of preventing it in terms of military personnel. Uh, but these days, there is a strong role and a necessary role for some domestic policing agencies to take in terms of preventing terrorism because of the changes in terrorism. And the fact that in some countries that had not seen domestic terrorism in a while are now seeing it. There is an explanation for, you know, giving some or having domestic policing forces having some of this equipment, but it's still concerning when they're using it not to combat terrorism per se, but in using it in ways, in interactions with just in civilians. Because well, uh, where, you know, that is, isn't that a slippery slope? Um, I'm also concerned about how that changes the stance of our citizens with respect to our domestic policing forces, where uh, I know this is going to be ideological based on my experience as a police officer, but I, can, I generally believe that our citizens gen should be able to look on their domestic policing forces as you're here to help us, not you're ag against us. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I certainly am no expert how they carry out and do their jobs and the attitudes and, and things that, and issues that they face. But definitely, there, there certainly does seem to be a heightened level of animosity towards police officers from the civilian side. 
And you make a good point there, too. Well, the fact that now there are these, you know, quote-unquote, homegrown terrorists. Originally, terrorism was overseas, wasn't on our soil. But now that it's happening, well, it does make sense in a way that you would begin to have that militarization of the police force because you're fighting terrorism now. Maybe not as widespread in number, uh, number-wise, but definitely it, it, it is happening. I mean, even if you think about the Vegas shooter, that's a military strategy for sure. And how else are you going to fight that? You know, you have to, you have to fight fire with fire kind of thing. You, you, you do have to use methods that will be effective. And if the effective method is, well, we got to plant C4 to a robot and <laughs> drive it into a guy and blow him up, yeah, I guess so. But like you said, there's that le- it's that slippery slope. There's that legal side where it's we're on home soil here. This is this is where we're not in some desert somewhere. I mean, we're we're here, and this is a citizen that you're dealing with. Yeah, but I'm also aware as I'm uh, listening to this and thinking about what I said is we're we're talking about this from a North American perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so other countries like in the UK, they'll say we've had it on our soil for a long time. Right. Yeah. And so, yes, we might have uh, we might be a little bit myopic on that view being in North America. Mm-hmm. Too, I wrote a paper on risk assessment of terrorists, That's of it. lone actor terrorists. That's it. Tell us about that. So I've been working in the field of um, risk assessment practices in criminal justice for a while. Um, these, what this means is that uh, we now have available a number of algorithmic risk tools. And an algorithm simply means an equation. But risk tools to predict the dangerousness of individuals. Um, and they're now being employed, these, being, these risk tools, employed across an individual's lifespan with the criminal justice system. For example, there are tools for police when responding to a domestic violence call to score how risky is this perpetrator, for example, of committing um, another physical act of abuse against the victim. Uh, It's being used in probation decisions, uh, sentencing decisions, parole decisions uh, about how risky people are. These are things such as often in these um, algorithm risk tools, they were developed on scientific studies of what risk factors are correlate with recidivism or other some type of criminal justice failure, such as failure to appear in a pretrial context. In any event, uh, so some common risk factors are criminal history because one's history is often predictive of one's future um, reoffending. So I did this in that particular paper in the context of is there an algorithmic risk tool available to predict the risk of lone actor terrorists? I was um, uh, mostly concerned with the rise of right-wing terrorists. Um, and indeed, there's not an algorithmic risk tool, and that's simply because there's not enough terrorists to be able to study, right. to be able to find correlations. Uh, but there is a way that does not mean that uh, there's that uh, officials should not be assess- trying to assess the threat of lone actor terrorists. They just must do it in a different way. Uh, But what also makes them more challenging to predict is their ideological bent. Whereas our common criminal, you know, maybe doing it for instrumental purposes, you know, committing acts, is um, it's harder to detect terrorists because of that ideology angle to it, uh, where we can't, or it's more difficult to ferret out who may be on that trajectory. Um, and then the other um, more difficult thing is we have a whole lot of people who have an ideological bent 
that are kind of would-be terrorists, but relatively few of them will actually carry out the terrorist event or terrorist act, uh, particularly on a monumental scale for various practical uh, and theoretical and personal reasons. And I imagine algorithms are used um, in many different areas of the criminal justice system. Um, More so, yes. Yeah. And tell us a few ways that they're used. Well, what's interesting there is that uh, these risk assessment tools are being used to assess defendants when even their lawyers often do not know that it's happening. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Yeah. So uh, just some examples. Um, in a lot of Western countries who want to reduce their rate of incarceration because of mass, what's called mass incarceration, is pretrial systems are often using them, for example, to be able to differentiate those defendants pretrial who are at high risk and maybe you keep them in jail uh, pending trial versus identifying the, those who are at low risk who then you, perhaps the justice system should release them. Because we, what we know is that pretrial incarceration uh, increases the risk of multiple things, such as the person pleading guilty, even if they may not be guilty. It increases their the severity of sentence once they're sentenced. Uh, it also obviously increases their potential victimization in jail because they're still in jail. Um, and it increases other negative outcomes, such as um, failure to get employment, losing their housing, losing their family members, uh, and various things. So that's an example of what the system wants to do generally is to be able to take their population and to be able to differentiate those who may be at higher risk for which certain outcomes may be appropriate for the, from those who are at lower risk um, and everywhere in between. Uh, these algorithms also are informing, depending on the jurisdictions, judges, and sentencing, whether they, for example, should sentence an individual to a prison sentence or not or give them a, some type of community sanction. Yeah, uh, and the big thing, I remember, <clears throat> psychology first year, correlation does not mean causation. <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, oh, that'd be great. But that's just, it's a tool, uh, you know, like anything, it is a tool. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's black and white, that it's a certainty. And it also shows how important they are, too. I mean, if a judge is taking that type of research into calculating a sentence... There's a lot of weight behind that. Well, what we've seen um, is it varies dramatically. So some criminal justice officials relying on these tools trust them, and it, it, and they have a lot of weight. But what we're finding is as many criminal justice actors don't trust the tools and ba basically ignore them. Um, now, there are many reasons to distrust the tools. Um, one is that uh, some officials think that their own judgment is, even, is better, uh, so they don't trust the tools. <laughs> Uh, but it's also true that the accuracy rates of these tools vary dramatically, although that's not well known, um, in part because these tools often are what we call black box tools, which is we, um, sometimes the developers claim they're proprietary and won't release the algorithm. And so it's black box to the extent that we don't really, we can't see the algorithm. We right. don't know how the tool is counting things. Um, there's also issues with uh, tools mostly... Um, have been developed on largely white male middle-class populations, and therefore they're just not as accurate with other populations, such as uh, different races for women, uh, juveniles, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, there's also an argument that these tools 
Um, even if they don't directly incorporate race, they contain factors that are proxies for race, such as the heavy reliance on criminal history. We know that there are um, uh, criminal history is, is skewed by race because of potentially discriminatory actions by police, for example. And so in some cases, even if the tool seems not seems to be race neutral, is some of that racial discrimination is baked into the factors that inform it. Uh, as another example, um, the tools can count things such as living in a, in a um, high crime neighborhood, and that's a proxy for race. Um, these tools can include things as edu educational attainment, which can then bake in discriminatory actions by other societal members, such as you know, the availability of good education in the one's neighborhood, for instance, or potentially discriminatory outcomes by how teachers you know, ranked students, that kind of thing. So um, there are a lot of fans of risk assessment tools, but then there are many issues that we are in the field are addressing even today. Yeah, well, and that's fair enough. I mean, it's like anything. I mean, it's a tool and some people are going to like it and some people yeah. are not. And there's always, you know. Yeah, and the other issue as well is to what extent do these defendants have a right for a human to be involved in their decisions? And so, you know, it should some of these decision points be entirely automated? Now, some argue that they should because um, that prevents human biases in these decisions. But at the same time, is to what extent do defendants have a right for a human touch? We're also then engaging in that kind of debate. We liken it, or there are some see it as minority reports. So that movie in which a computer basically said, this person predicted this person is going to re-offend in the future. Therefore, as a system, we have a right then to criminally punish them now. Oh, that's it. Yeah, and, and like with uh, when I was talking to Ryan, who's who's all about the artificial intelligence and IP and all that stuff, that that kind of came up too, which is how the criminal system is, or just the legal system in general, will change, or how it will change, or how it won't change in regards to the influence of technology and and how pervasive or not. Um, it will be moving forward. So yeah, it, do, it does raise an interesting issue. And particularly, like you, like you mentioned, having that human touch on their sentencing, on, on, on the criminal procedure. Um, yeah, so you men involved. mentioned sentencing, which is probably one of the important ones here um, in terms of how much you know, do we want sentencing to be automated versus don't we still have a feeling that they're that defendant had, you know, might have a right kind of to want somebody to be merciful. Yeah, and you don't get that with technology. With tool, you though. get that with the with the human side, and and even if you think about well, even just judges. Well, well, we're people. We all have different beliefs and opinions on things. I mean, and the difference from one judge to another could be the difference of whether you get bail or not. I mean, hopefully it's. You, you know, you hope they kind of control for having such despairingly different um, outcomes, obviously. But it's a factor. I mean, even when you look at studies of uh, uh, if they've had lunch or if they ha if a judge hasn't had lunch yet, they tend <laughs> to be a little bit harsher because they're a little more irritable. I mean, even just those little things, it's like the algorithm removes that. But also, it's like anything. It's it's a double-edged sword. No matter, there's always pros and cons to, to anything, and it's just a matter of well, what is overall the best road to go down. 
so kind of wanted to close on so your involvement obviously in the the uk criminal system and the us one one of the things that i noticed especially with family law culturally it definitely seems like race is more of a racism and all that stuff exists all the all the isms exist everywhere obviously but it certainly seems culturally in north america canada well canada and the states racism is more of the thing that you have to watch out for versus here it definitely seems like it's more of a classism type thing and like i said when you look at just divorce law and child support and those types of things family child law you really see that classism pop up. So my question to you is, just generally speaking, what are the kind of stark differences that you notice between the UK and, and US? We'll, we'll stick with the criminal justice system. What do you, what do you notice? <laughs> uh, I think you're right. How police interact with, uh, based on class, is salient here, m much more salient here than in criminal or in um, uh, North America. Uh, but there are the racial issues, though, with how the criminal justice system acts here as well. But um, the, you know, class-based uh, is much more important and recognized. Um, but that's, you know, explained by historical differences. Right. Just North America was, you know, not as much based on the class system, particularly a class system that has titles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've never seen such a long list of titles yeah. one could choose from when <laughs> filling out some kind of socio-demographic information on a form. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you notice that um, sort of how that classism plays out through the domestic violence lens? Yeah, well, questioning victims and perpetrators in higher class households much more of a delicate touch by police officers than of lower class. And just to close the show out, I mean, we mentioned the coercive control law that was pretty progressive. Even not law necessarily, but just attitudes or sort of indicates that we're moving in a good direction. Publicizing it so that the government, at least here in the UK, being strong, declaring it a public health problem and putting the resources behind to treat it like that. But at the same time, falling into the role of passing policies and laws and not considering the unintended consequences were actually, even though, yes, still unintended, they were still foreseeable yeah. for some of us. So we could probably wrap it up there. I really enjoyed uh, the two modules I took with you uh, last year, <laughs> so I was, I was very excited to have you come on. Thank you very much. Thank you.